Ahoy crew, and welcome back to the Maritime History Podcast. Today, we finally embark on a discussion of that most famed of ancient institutions, something that has come to be known most widely today as the Delian League. Today, then, we have episode 41, a league of our own, or the Delian League. In full transparency, just in case any of you might recognize the episode title joke, John Hale does make a similar use of that phrase for the title of chapter 6 in his book, Lords of the Sea. I had written this whole episode and I was checking some sources when I realized the replication there. So it was certainly unintentional, and also being from the home of the Rockford Peaches, I personally just couldn't pass up the chance to use the reference. But all credit, fair credit, goes to Dr. Hale for getting to that one first. So with that cleared up, at the outset today I want to make clear that several of the key events in the episode today are things that we discussed or alluded to toward the end of Series 2 and episode 39, episode 40. Back then, we examined these things in the immediate wake of Athenian victory at Salamis. And while that is certainly one facet of the examination, we did cut the story short before we had followed the threads much further. That is exactly what we're going to try to do now, though. So by revisiting a few of the significant events that occurred after the end of the Greco-Persian Wars, we can now connect them with the things that come after to help us fill out the rest of the picture, connect the proverbial dots, if you will. Through the concluding episodes of Series 2, I tried to draw our focus to some of the disagreements that simmered beneath the surface, as Sparta led the allied Greeks against Persia, while Athens tried to play nicely even though they held the true reins of naval strength and influence throughout the war. Sparta was the official military lead of the confederation, but as we saw time and again, Themistocles had other ideas, and then he worked deftly behind the scenes to bring those ideas to pass. The potential for the relationship between Athens and Sparta to go sour did exist even prior to the Battle of Salamis. Remember, back before that battle, Sparta had tried to convince all the Greek allies that Salamis was not the right place to make their stand, but that they should all instead fall back to the Isthmus of Corinth and put up their stand there. Themistocles then threatened to completely withdraw Athens from the allied Hellenes if this plan did turn out to be the final decision, and this was clearly a threat that all of the allies realized they had to cave to. Then, as we repeatedly observed, the naval battle of Salamis occurred in the late summer of 480 BCE. The city of Athens had been sacked not long before that battle, and lucky for them, the allied Greek fleet then emerged victorious from the close confines conflict in the straits at Salamis. Because the victory at Salamis happened so late in the sailing season, the Greeks decided to winter in their homeland, and that is to say, the majority of the allies opted for that decision over the opposition of the Mystocles, if you'll recall, who it seems wanted to pursue the remnants of Persia's fleet and finish them off once and for all. So then, 
we see that almost in the very wake of the most famous of Greek naval victories, the Allied forces disagreed about next steps. This was just a continuation of the trend, as we have seen. But now that the imminent danger had been averted in the wake of Salamis, there was, of course, a lesser pressure on the Greek allies to try to put aside their differences in the name of living to fight another day. Now that they did have some breathing room, the need to compromise was relegated a bit. The summer of 479 BCE then saw the conclusory victories at Plataea and Mycale, one a famous infantry engagement and the other that most bizarre of naval chases, capped off by the terrestrial battle between Greek marines and Persian men on the beach at the foot of Mount Mycale in Ionia. It was here that the skeletal remnants of Persia's navy were ultimately burned in a beach bonfire that sealed Greek victory, but more significantly as well, it sealed Greek naval supremacy. Naval strength was not really the driving factor in everything that came next, but it certainly plays a role in the story. The driving factor on the whole is probably the type of government that was present in Greek cities at this time, especially those in Ionia. Remember, the push from a few key Ionian cities back in the 490s BCE to shift from tyranny to democracy, this was a prime cause in the Ionian Revolt, which in many ways itself was a big domino early in the chain that led to the second Persian invasion of Greece and well, everything that we're talking about now. Miletus in particular had been under the tyrant Aristagoras, but he declared the city to be a democracy in 499 BCE, for selfish reasons only, of course. And this declaration, it set in motion the Ionian Revolt in many ways. In this period, then, we saw the naval battle of Lade, where Greece was defeated, no thanks to the defection of the ships of Samos. Well, after the Greek allies came out the other side of the Persian invasion, this is in 479 BCE, basically, the Ionian cities once again assumed a central role in influencing events. There's another similarity in the before and after comparison, and that is that on both ends of this war, on the front and the back end, Sparta was pretty reluctant to get involved with Ionian affairs. Now, there were, of course, competing opinions back at home in domestic Spartan politics, but wartime momentum carried through to dictate the post-war policy for a little while. After the war ended, the Spartan general Pausanias he had led the army at Plataea in 479. He won a claim for his leadership there. He was then elected to lead the still cohesive allied Hellenes in their continuing campaign against Persia in the eastern areas of the Greek world. Now, it's possible that Sparta didn't really have their heart in bringing this fight to Persia over on that Asian side of the geographic dividing line. But when it became clear that Athens intended to continue the fight, Sparta sent a general there in order to maintain at least their figurehead leadership of the Allies. 
We talked about this general back in series two, but a brief recap is probably helpful. So Pausanias, he led the Greeks in a few victories in 478 as the Spartan general in the eastern reaches. These victories were against Persian garrisons that remained on the island of Cyprus. Thucydides tells us that they subdued most of the island. That's really all he says about it. There was then also the more consequential siege and capture of Byzantium. Capturing this city from Persia especially was important for the Greeks because it allowed them to reopen the grain trade that flowed from the Black Sea. And this was likely more crucial for the Athenians than it was for the Spartans, or really for the entire Peloponnese. The outcome, though, in most other respects, proved uh, a bit more complicating for everybody who was involved, though. I'll not get into the nitty-gritty details. The historical accounts, though, seem to agree that the Spartan general Pausanias, although he did win some of these victories, he was arrogant. He was perhaps violent, and then in the end he also saw fit, for whatever reason, to adopt Persian accoutrements and habits. He was accused then of collaborating with the Persians for personal gain, and it seems that this did in fact occur. So in the end, the Ionian Greek cities that the Hellenic alliance was supposed to be liberating, they quickly grew resentful of the leadership and direction which Pausanias brought to the affairs. Tradition held that Athens was the mother city of most Greek colonies in Ionia, and it so happened that Athens was also the world's only true sea power at this time, as we've firmly established. So from the Ionian Greek perspective, Athenian leadership on its own without Sparta's participation surely seemed the more agreeable option. I believe that we did talk about this in past episodes as well, so I'll just hit fast forward to say merely that Pausanias, he was recalled to Sparta, there he was put on trial, he was acquitted, he returned to Byzantium as a private citizen, then he was expelled by Athens, he chose to collaborate with the Persians some more, then he was brought back to Sparta another time, and before they could put him on another trial, he wound up getting killed. The upshot of all of this is that Sparta essentially lost her military leadership and influence on the policy as it was made in the East after this event in 478 BCE. The Ionians also got their wish of having only Athens as the leader of Greek policymaking abroad. Herodotus says simply that the incidents with Pausanias were pure pretext for Athens to nudge Sparta out of the events that were unfolding in Ionia and throughout the Aegean, and it's of course possible. It may also be more complicated than this, but it is without doubt that in the end, Sparta did not have any place left at the table other than to worry about their own affairs in the Peloponnese and they may not have been altogether upset about that outcome. There is one scene out of Plutarch which kind of illustrates this moment in short. It's perhaps too dramatic to be actual history, actual fact, but it does illustrate the dynamics nicely. 
it's in 478 BCE, when Pausanias was still the Spartan leader in the Eastern Offensive. But while the Athenian leadership of their group of ships and men who were participating in the campaigns there, and the leaders of the Athenian contingent, were the pair of Aristides and Simon. Plutarch paints a picture by saying that the Ionian Greeks, quote, they longed for the Athenian supremacy because of the rapacity of Pausanias and his severity also. He was violent and angry, etc. Then, the leaders of Chios, Samos, and Lesbos, specifically, they came to Aristides of Athens and they tried to persuade him to take over the alliance and to remove the Spartan leadership. Aristides, after they made this request of him, he shrewdly perceived that to take such a step would probably be the point of no return as far as the relationship between Athens and Sparta went. So in Plutarch's presentation, Aristides then asks the Ionians to take some type of action to prove their loyalty. He, quote, saw the urgency and justice of what they requested, but he wanted to know that they wouldn't shift back to desiring Spartan leadership if that arrangement should later appear more advantageous. What more dramatic of an action, then, could the Ionians dream up than to row out and to purposefully run down the ship of the Spartan general Pausanias? Plutarch describes them as closing in on both sides of the ship as it was putting out before the line. This was an insult to the leadership of Pausanias, basically, and it predictably provoked him into a rage-filled outburst in front of the fleet. Shortly after this is when he was recalled back to Sparta, and as we've outlined, the saga concluded with Sparta choosing not to send back any leadership replacement. They effectively ceded the leadership of foreign policy in the Aegean to Athens alone. It's this development that really brings us to a point where we need to define how the Greek alliance was structured during the Persian Wars, and then how things shifted and why they shifted. Talking this through should give us a better formal sense of how things functioned during the Persian Wars when Sparta was the hegemon, and then how the rise of Athens then led to the Delian League, which differed from the prior arrangement in some notable ways. It is useful first to outline the alliance that had Sparta at the head an alliance that actually pre-existed the Persian Wars. Then we can get into why that changed, and then the specifics of how. The league that had Sparta as leader is the Peloponnesian League. That's the term that historians use to describe the league that Sparta had actually brought into being back in the 6th century BCE. They created it as a means to defend their territory and Sparta's somewhat odd political and social structure odd at least when compared to other contemporary societies around her. Sparta's large population of helots, effectively a slave population, motivated Sparta to form a complex series of alliances with neighboring city-states who often agreed to serve under Sparta's military leadership if Sparta were to call on their assistance. 
This Spartan League was pretty loose. I think that term serves us well enough to call it a loose league. We can call it a league, I suppose, but in the early form, prior to Persia's threat especially, it was an alliance where Sparta formed a separate and uniquely defined agreement of alliance with each city-state that joined. Now, some of these states were effectively forced to join as allies with Sparta. She forced them to join at the end of a spear, basically, but the point remains. There was not an agreement between and amongst every involved ally. It was Sparta at the core, and a lot of surrounding city-states and areas that had individual agreements with Sparta, but when all of these hung on that central core, it was a loose league. Sparta had formed this Peloponnesian League as a defensive alliance where she was the leader, the hegemon, as the ancient Greeks used the term, and each state had a separate but similar agreement. Now, Donald Kagan is the scholar on this whole discussion from me, so I'll be heavily relying on his work to help us chart a course through. To start, he describes the early purpose of the Peloponnesian League as being one where, quote, pragmatism, not a theory, provided the interpretive principle within the alliance, close quote. This is to say, basically, that while the alliances themselves were formal, Sparta threw her military might on the ground, in reality, Sparta held all the cards. If it was to her advantage, she could pressure one or several allies to do her bidding, but if a random ally here or there requested aid from Sparta, she could typically choose whether or not to respond, and there were rarely any ramifications for Sparta if she acted as she pleased. Characterizing it this way is probably a bit simplistic, so with one qualifier, I'll let it stand for now because it does help us move things along. The qualifier to drop in is that there were internal conflicts inside Sparta that sometimes weakened the control she could maintain over the alliance. Sparta's internal constitution consisted of kings and ephors, simply put, and these leaders rotated, so the policymaking was not always agreed upon or consistent, a fact which Sparta's allies could, at times, exploit. Not much different from the way that the modern world functions, to be honest. It's just a built-in and ingrained element of politics, I think, but it's worth mentioning. So as we said earlier, the Peloponnesian League existed before any wars or fears about Persia had surfaced in Greek minds. But then when these concerns did become reality, a group of Greek city-states assembled and hammered out an agreement, which is often called the Hellenic League, for it's the term Hellene that is often used by Herodotus to describe the group as a whole and the actions that they took. Kagan argues that the Hellenic alliance was formed in 481 BCE, and that it was an agreement among the allied Greek city-states to join together to defend against Persia's incursion, but then also to go on the offensive if it became possible. 
He further argues that the alliance was perpetual, as agreed to by the Greeks. I think that the scholars can go ahead and duke out these specific points of debate here, but it does make sense that the anti-Persian alliance would be perpetual, given that the Greeks didn't actually know how long the Persian threat was going to persist. To bastardize an infamous Donald Rumsfeldism, the known unknown of the Greco-Persian Wars was how persistent the Persian kings would be and how far they would go to subjugate the pesky Greeks. As such, the Hellenic alliance, as all the battles that they undertook on Greek soil serves to prove, the alliance was quite necessary in 481 and 480, but the difficult questions started to emerge after Salamis, and especially after the Persian forces had been driven back to Asia Minor. This then brings us to the debates that we discussed earlier in the episode today, where the involvement of Athens and Sparta helped win victories at Plataea and at Mycale, but then things began to fracture under the, quote, leadership of Pausanias. It's in the wake of this breakdown that the debate then came to focus on the question of what happens if some of us believe that the Persian threat has actually ended, but others of us don't. The alliance among the Hellenes was perpetual, as they all understood it, but facts on the ground might not dictate that approach forever, and really things were going to unravel from there. As we mentioned earlier today too, Thucydides says that the faults of Pausanias were used by Athens as a pretext to nudge Sparta out of things and to seize the lead role. I think that this is an overly simplistic way to portray things, since, as we have seen in our talk about all of the Persian wars and all of the battles and strategy there, there was always that underlying element of fundamental difference in policy and objective between Sparta's leaders and the Athenian leaders. These two leading cities managed to find common ground long enough to win the grand victories for Greece. But in the end, as they sought to drive Persia out of Ionia and out of any position where Persia could later impact Greece, that's where the common ground began to melt away. Pausanias was perhaps used as pretext at the very end of the road, but many progressive steps led to that point. Once the point was reached, though, what happened from there? Well, as we've seen, Sparta looked for a reason to not have to bother worrying about Ionia any longer, and that reason did, of course, materialize. Sparta withdrew, and although the Hellenic alliance the Hellenic League still technically existed, reality on the ground had moved a bit. It was in this same time frame that Themistocles was back in Athens and he was working his sneaky magic to make it possible for Athens to rebuild her walls, which antagonized the aims of Sparta again in a different way, so the relationship stressors were popping up on multiple fronts in the wake of victory over Persia. Once the dam finally broke and Sparta elected not to send any representative back to Ionia, it was clear that Athens was now in the driver's seat. 
It's interesting to me to see that Thucydides describes the transfer from Sparta to Athens as being purely because the Ionian Greek cities requested this outcome. He says that, quote, the Athenians succeeded to the supremacy by the voluntary act of the allies through their hatred of Pausanias. This portrayal focuses on just one element within the greater context. But still, it is true that the Ionian Greek cities were asking Athens to intervene, and Athens was happy to oblige. The bigger point for us today, though, is to discuss what now happened next. Athens was in that driver's seat, with the Ionians seeking assurance that they would have benefit of the Athenian navy and her protection in the Ionian defense against Persia. Athens did, of course, feel keen pressure to make sure that she could also defend herself if Persia ever decided to pursue a third invasion. And Athens probably thought at this point that they may have to do it even without the participation of Sparta. Aside from that, though, Athens also had ambitions of her own, no matter what Persia or Sparta did or didn't do. This, of course, then brings us to that formal creation of the League sans Sparta, which occurred in the winter of 478 to 477 BCE. At this time, the participating allies, they met together on the Aegean island of Delos. It's from this island that the resulting league's name derives. We know it as the Delian League, although there was a more formal name, which the ancient Greeks knew it by. The details of the league's original forming are unfortunately spotty. There are many details from this far back in history that are spotty, as we know, so make do we shall. The clearest description of what the attendees at the Delian Convention agreed to comes from Aristotle, believe it or not, writing over a hundred years after the event. In his work on the Athenian constitution, he tells us that, quote, the Ionians swore to have the same enemies and friends as Athens. So in a sense, their vow was similar to the vow that Sparta had made anyone swear if they wanted to join the Hellenic League against Persia or the Peloponnesian League. Not too different so far then, although Athens was the hegemon of the Delian League. The way that city-states signified their oath to abide by this vow was to take a lump of iron and to cast it into the sea, the idea here being that their vow would remain in place until the moment that their lump of iron should see fit to cast off the bonds of physics and instead float to the surface of the Aegean. In other words, then, the vow and the bond to follow Athenian foreign policy was perpetual. The Greek historian Diodorus Siculus also shed some light on the original purpose for the Delian League, at least insofar as we can tell. He was writing far later down the timeline than Aristotle even was, which is just something that we have to keep in the back of our minds. Nevertheless, Diodorus writes that the League was formed with a mind, quote, towards the war which they suspected would come from the Persians, close quote. And, of course, this brings up a relevant point that we have to keep in perspective. This is the reality that back here in the very aftermath of Salamis, 
Plataea and Mycale. Many of the Greeks fully expected Persia to draw back, but then to regain her strength and make another attempt to invade Greece. So the league amongst the Athenians and her allies, the Delian League, was an agreement to share friends and enemies with Athens and to fight off Persia as the main focus. Now then, we should come to look at what separates and distinguishes the Hellenic League from the Delian League, besides these two obvious distinctions. Perhaps another obvious one is that the Hellenic League was led by Sparta, and it was formed to resist Persia. The Delian League's purpose was similar, but was led by Athens. We've said this already. Beyond this, though, the Hellenic League's membership was quite different, even just at first glance. The Hellenic League was smaller. It consisted mainly of city-states from the Peloponnese and from central Greece, places like Sparta, Corinth, Aegina, Megara, and then of course Athens. The majority of states that banded together against Persia the first time around were in mainland Greece or the Peloponnese then. Many of the Aegean islands and the city-states in Ionia, they weren't part of the Hellenic League. Either this was because Persia had taken control of the Ionian cities very early on, or because the Aegean islands, they chose to Medize, probably because they didn't think the Hellenic League could actually protect them, and their hand probably was more wisely played on the side of Persia. Some of them were also just conquered by Persia early in the invasion, and they didn't really have much choice otherwise. So contrast this membership of the Hellenic League and the way it unfolded with the Delian League that later emerges in 478. The Delian League was comprised of almost entirely Aegean islands, and then Greek city-states scattered around the outer edges of the Aegean. No cities from the Peloponnese joined the Delian League. This league was almost exclusively the territory of Attica, along with later Euboea, the island, and then an array of city-states in Ionia, Thrace in the northern Aegean, then the Hellespont, along with Caria in the southern Aegean and southern Asia Minor, with a countless number of islands of the central Aegean also along for the ride. As such, the distinction between the Hellenic League and the Delian League is pretty clear. The formation of this separate League of Alliance, it's really the point where the naval supremacy of Athens is formalized. This also really then sets the wheels in motion in a more clear sense, and it starts to sketch out the lines of conflict that will begin to emerge. Before we get there, though, which will probably be next time around, let's conclude with a description of the form and function of the Delian League. The most noteworthy aspect of the Delian League is often focused upon by historians who analyze it, and this is the fact that the League agreed to financial contributions that would go toward keeping the alliance in readiness to defend or attack Persia at any time. The Hellenic Alliance to my recollection, it didn't have any similar formal element. It was just a defensive alliance where the members agreed to share common friends and enemies and to join military action 
if called. I don't think that there was any formal voting structure in place either for the Hellenic allies, which, as we will see, is another distinguishing factor. In contrast, the Delian League formalized their required contributions that the members had to contribute, and even formalized the place where the spoils of war and where the member contributions were to be stored. The island of Delos, where the League was formed, was also the location of the League's treasury to begin with, and this is, again, part of the reason why it's known as the Delian League. The members agreed to either supply forces or money into the League. If they chose to give money, then the amount was determined by Athens, who appointed someone to calculate the assessment due from each member during the coming year, and then the allotments were recalculated over time based upon the ability of each member to give. Given the fact that the Delian League contained almost entirely islands or cities around the periphery of the Aegean, the required forces were ships, if the city elected to contribute forces rather than money. This is what the sea power of Athens depended upon, their navy. But as we've established, the maintenance, the outfitting, the manpower for a standing navy was quite costly. As we will come to see, the cost factor was bad enough when a navy to defend against a unified Persian fleet is all that was needed. This was as at Salamis. When Athens undertook to create a standing navy, which would be used to patrol the entire Aegean, the cost would grow even more substantially. So, the formal setup is described by Thucydides. And this is about the best idea we have about how things functioned at the very beginning of the League's existence. He writes, quote, Athens determined which cities were to contribute money and which cities were to contribute ships. Also, the Office of Treasurers for Hellas was first instituted by the Athenians. These officers received the tribute, which was first fixed at 460 talents. The common treasury was at Delos, and the congresses were held in the temple. This then was the basic structure, form, and purpose of the Delian League as originally formed. I think that we've adequately compared it to the Hellenic League, but as you can already see, the memberships in the two leagues were drastically different, as were the technical requirements of being part of one or the other. The requirements for membership in the Delian League especially played a big role in how the League evolved. This is something that we will see play out over the next handful of episodes. And when I say requirements, I'm referring mainly to the fact that the League members were required to contribute ships or money. It seems like this conclusion of the episode is also a good place to just give us a, a rough sense of where we're headed. So I'll close with another observation from Thucydides. He observed that one of the chief causes of problems within the League was tied either to, quote, arrears of tribute and vessels or to failure of service, and that in time, the wish to get off service in the League's fleet made most of the members arrange to pay their share of the expense in money instead of ships, 
and so to avoid having to leave their homes. We haven't touched on it yet, but the structure for voting about what the League was going to do about decision-making, these decision-making assemblies were made up of a one-member, one-vote system. So this structure quickly resulted in a situation where the small states didn't have much power, they all lined up behind the vote of Athens, and her policy almost always won the day. You would think that a one-member, one-vote system would be more egalitarian, but in reality, Athens held all of the power and could really throw her weight around to achieve her intended outcome. Historians often make the observation that the one-member, one-vote system may not have been set up with the express goal of structuring the Delian League in a way that Athens really called the shots. Things may have played out that way unintentionally. Me, perhaps I'm a little more cynical, I have to imagine that the shrewd Athenians might have had a feeling that they'd be able to get their way in the policymaking debates by structuring things in this manner. Whichever side you come down on, in time, the arrangement did leave Athens at the head of a League of Allies, who were showering money into a central treasury, which was itself funding the largest navy that the ancient world had yet seen. The largest standing navy, perhaps I should clarify. Persia did have a big navy, but it wasn't a standing navy in the formal sea power sense. It's perhaps a technicality, but I felt the need to make the distinction. Once things shifted to where members didn't supply their ships, as the quote from Thucydides alludes to, this is down the line and we'll talk about it in more depth, but in time that shift began to occur just because it was more onerous to supply ships than it was to contribute money to the treasury. Once this shift occurred, the system kind of just evolved into one where we can see why Athens comes to be viewed as an empire. They were, in many senses at that point, just collecting tribute from client cities, much in the same way that Persia had formerly done. And then Athens was funneling this money into her own navy to do with as she pleased. As I said, we will continue to follow this thread in upcoming episodes. Next time, we will delve into how this arrangement began to impact the unfolding of events and personalities that were part of the political and naval decision-making in the years following 478. Thankfully, this will also get us right back into looking at naval battles and naval strategy, which, believe it or not, they see Greece again face off against Persia. There's so much more besides that happening in the mix, too, so we will do our best to make it all make sense on the next episode and following. To conclude today, I just want to say thank you all for listening and for continuing to support the podcast so generously. I'm aiming to return to more regular episodes, as I outlined on the Series 2 recap and on the update that were recently posted. These more regular episodes will have to be a more manageable duration of episode as well, and I hope that that will be a welcome development for the most part. Going hand-in-hand hand with this, I'm aiming to push out more consistent member episodes as well. These will be made up either of 
cutting room floor type discussion from main episode research here that just has to get cut for the sake of time. Or I may also focus on other reading that I do about maritime concerns from any number of eras on the member episodes. We'll have to see how that plays out, but if you have any requests, do let me know. And remember, the website and social media outlets are the best place to stay apprised of all of these developments. And members, you can reach me by email at any time if you have requests or questions. Your support is always immensely appreciated and impactful. Finally today, I wanted to mention the potential on my part that some of the older episodes could possibly do with a remaster. I have listened to some of them, and my oh my, were the microphone and recording editing skills that I had back in the day lacking. In recent months, I've been able to upgrade the equipment that I use to record, and I've learned a lot more about proper editing and recording. I may do some redux episodes here and there if possible and i hope that's a benefit i think it gets more new listeners also plugged in earlier on but there is also something about seeing how indie podcasts evolve over time so i'm not quite decided there yet i do however like the idea that re-recording or editing could allow me to also drop in some new sections to older episodes because the archaeology and the research is always ongoing, and there are some new discoveries that I think would fit well into past discussions we've had. The other tangentially related note to share here is that I have been slowly adding episode transcripts to the website proper, just because I think it's important for anyone to have access to the material if they so wish, regardless of situation, ability, or technology at hand. More outlets are better, basically. So do check out some of the earlier episodes for transcripts and images of everything that we talk about. Those are all on the show notes page for each specific episode, and I will be updating those as time goes on. Can't think of anything else I wanted to mention here in closing, so I'll just say that that does it for me today. I have lots of ideas percolating for future endeavors, some ideas about smaller episode series that we can do to keep things mixed up, or just small bite-sized discussions of random topics that would also be interesting, I think. For now, though, I'm going to focus on getting a rhythm going once again, and then all those other ideas can be worked into the mix as the world allows. One step at a time, though, right? That's the mantra. Until we talk in the next episode, crew, Thank you so much for listening. Fair winds and following seas from me here at the Maritime History Podcast. <laughs>